MH Productions presents Women Like Judy. We're your hosts, Connor and Dev. Welcome to Season 1. She's not just a faded photograph. That is what Beatrice Johnson titled her memoir-style book about her older sister and best friend, Clara Provost. On January 7, 1974, Clara was found brutally murdered, her three-year-old son Nelson, left behind to witness the horrific scene. We had the privilege of corresponding directly with Beatrice. I wish everyone had the honor of meeting someone like Beatrice, of calling her a friend. I wish we could accurately portray to you the bravery she showed in sharing her sister's story in the aftermath of Clara's brutal and devastating death. While we may not be able to put into words the impact her story has had on us, we can offer one thing. Buy her book. We'll link it in the show notes below. It's not only a moving story about the love she has for her sister, it's also a timeless way to keep her sister's memory alive and share just who she was outside of the tragedy. We hope this episode will share more about Clara, but please take the time to look out Beatrice's book. I truly haven't stopped thinking about it since I finished reading months ago. It's very difficult. It was very difficult to write because I was so I was so emotional because I was thinking about all my my life with her and and uh, it, it was just. I mean, I had times where I really broke down. I just didn't, I pretended I wasn't crying, but, oh, but I really was. Clara was nothing short of stunning. Her delicate, petite features and large eyes caught the attention of endless suitors. Clara was special, though. More than her striking beauty, she was kind to everyone. Her patience and gentle disposition were genuine. As the eldest of six siblings, she was no stranger to being a nurturing caregiver. Clara was born on November 6th of 1950. Beatrice makes it clear in her writing that their childhood was far from easy. Their father was a severe alcoholic who was prone to bouts of violent abuse. From a very young age, Clara stepped up to take on the parental responsibilities, ensuring her siblings were safe and taken care of even when she was just a child herself. Despite the continued hardships Clara faced, she kept an optimistic and forgiving attitude throughout her life. Beatrice wrote in her book that Clara never spoke ill of anyone, which feels like a rare quality in itself. You know, she really, she she was so kind and shy at the same time. She was shy too, you wouldn't know. But she was kind to people. She'd help them out all the time. And even when she was growing up here in in Keene, New Hampshire, I mean, this is Gossip City, Keene, New Hampshire was. And even the women that would talk, uh, you know, make up stories about my sister, they were nasty to her, but my sister never said a word to anybody. Throughout her youth, Clara and her family moved around the state of New Hampshire between Keene and Peterborough. These areas of New Hampshire are not only remote, but they're sprawling. You could be a mile between neighbors. 
Beatrice recounted a funny incident where she and Clara attempted a shortcut to school through the woods in an effort to save themselves time from taking the longer route by road. When they reached the top of the hilly shortcut, belly laughing and stumbling, they looked down to find their shoes and socks covered in mud and dirt. They had to laugh at the effort, but vowed they would stick to the road route moving forward. Clara came to understand grief at a young age. When she was just 15 and a half, Clara noticed a young man working at her uncle's garage. Danny, the handsome 18-year-old, would sneak glances at her while he worked before finally mustering up the courage to ask her out. Danny would spend any spare moment he had with Clara. He was even inclusive of her younger siblings. Clara fell in love with the country music as it hummed through Danny's car. Soon, she fell in love with him too. On the eve of her 16th birthday, she received a call that Danny had been driving his dad's truck when it struck a telephone pole. Rumors circulated that perhaps someone, in a fit of jealousy or anger, had compromised the vehicle. The police claimed this was not the case, that Danny had died of a sudden heart attack. Clara, on the day of her 16th birthday, was forced to grieve the loss of her first love. Even as a young teenage woman, Clara had the kind of maturity and poise that are rare to encounter in a person. Often the subject of jealous outbursts from female peers, envious of her natural radiance, Clara would never fight back nor reciprocate in any way. In fact, she often acted bashful as the recipient of compliments, especially ones calling her out for her beauty. During her teenage years, despite the traumas Clara endured, she stayed resilient and hopeful for the future. In the summer of 1967, she fell in love for the second time, a 1966 Mustang convertible with a sleek green body. Over the course of that summer, she began to notice the driver too, a young man named Nelson. He was more on the reserve side, but after a few times of racing by in his car, Nelson mustered up the courage to ask Clara out. Clara had a soft spot for cars. When he offered her a ride, how could she say no? Just a few months before she turned 18, in July of 1968, Clara married Nelson, with her sister Bea beside her as her maid of honor. Her wedding was a magical occasion. The transition to married life was tough for Clara, though. Given her traumatic childhood and early adult years, she hated being left alone at night. Her fear kept her up when her husband was working the night shift. She would leave all the lights on in an attempt to feel safer. Her marriage was tested again, when a male neighbor made an advance toward Clara. She was racked with guilt. Clara's favorite thing to do was to read the Bible, and she sought answers for this transgression in the church. Eventually, Nelson and Clara rebuilt the trust in their marriage and moved closer to Clara's family. Shortly after, she found out that she was even pregnant with a son. When Beatrice learned her sister was pregnant, she immediately moved in with Nelson and Clara to help. Beatrice's deep bond with Clara is irrefutable, especially when she writes about the blissful memories she has spending every moment together with her sister, even if that meant sleeping on a couch each night. Both women had their fair share of difficulties, marital and emotional, in the years that followed. Perhaps it made them both cherish the memories of that time together even more. By the summer of 1973, Clara told her family that she and Nelson were separating. The differences in their marriage were impossible to resolve at this point so the pair had decided a separation was necessary. Initially, Clara moved to Lemonster to pursue a relationship with a new man, 
but after recognizing he was not worth her attention, she tried to relocate to where her family was residing, in the neighboring city of Fitchburg, Massachusetts. Fitchburg, the third hilliest city in the United States, has an industrial feel similar to that of Lowell, Massachusetts, with red brick textile factories and a strong river dividing up the city. At the same time that Clara was looking to move, B had just moved into a new apartment down the street. This left B's old apartment, which was directly downstairs from their mother and father, available to Clara. It was a nice apartment, though the one thing about this apartment that made B uncomfortable was a feature, or rather a lack of feature, in the layout. The apartment had no emergency exit. Certainly, this would not be up to code by today's standard, but for a young mother in need of a place to stay, it was something she decided to overlook for the time being. One night, Clara and her mother decided to spend the night out together at a local country western club in the town over. A night to enjoy time with her mother while listening to her favorite music. It was an ideal time for Clara. While they were together minding their own business, laughing and catching up, Clara's mother could not help but notice that a man was staring at Clara. Later, he would tell authorities she gave him her number so they could go on a proper date. But Beatrice, though she wasn't there at the time, doesn't really believe that this is a true account of what had happened. Ronald Dame, we will only say his name once, and we'll refer to him from here forward as the defendant, just like her family does. Claims came out that he had been dating Clara, and this shifted the story in the media to make him seem like that of an ex-boyfriend. The defendant was anything but a former love interest. He was a stalker who became obsessed with Clara. The night he saw her at the bar, he more likely than not followed her home after learning the route to her apartment. What a coincidence, he only lived a few blocks over. The defendant relentlessly pursued her, driving by her apartment or even just sitting in his truck, observing from across the street. While all of this was happening, stories of young females being murdered in the area were becoming more frequent. Clara found herself in a harrowing situation. She was fearful of the news, but unsure how to ward off her unabating stalker. Joanne Muldoon and Deborah Johnson were murdered just down the street from Clara. Truly in an act of survival, Clara eventually succumbed to his relentless asks and agreed to go on two dates with the defendant. In December, she gathered the courage to admit to him that she saw no future for the two of them. Shortly after, according to Bia, Clara told a close friend that there was someone she was deeply afraid of watching her. She never had the opportunity to give that friend the name, though. On January 5th, Clara and Bia decided to spend the night out together, just the two of them. By the time they reached the bar, a 15-minute or so walk from Clara's apartment, Clara realized she had forgotten her ID and there was a police officer outside checking. She promised Bia she would return swiftly. She was just going to make a quick dash to the apartment, grab her ID, and sprint back to join her sister. When Clara began to take longer than she should have to return, the worry was sinking in for Beatrice. Finally, Clara showed up, physically, sure, but mentally she seemed to be in a different place. It was clear she had had some kind of interaction that left her quite shaken up. Bea tried to press her in an effort to support her sister, but Clara brushed off the incident and wouldn't really go into detail. The next day, Clara's sister Sheila noticed Clara making vague references to take care of her son in the case that something happens. 
Shayla was immediately distraught, but Claire looked away. She didn't want to burden anyone in her life with her growing concerns. On the night of January 6th, Clara was sound asleep with her young son, Nelson, wrapped in a blanket near her. The defendant, a depraved monster, broke into her apartment with the intent to harm Clara in every way he possibly could. Clara fought back with every bit of strength she had, scraping her fingernails down the sides of his leathery face. The defendant not only brutally killed Clara, he left her son in the apartment next to his dying mother. Clara was not discovered until the following morning when her mother heard Nelson's cries from upstairs. We're not ending here. We are not giving the defendant the power he took from Clara that day. As devastating as the murder of Clara was, her family never gave up hope that she would find justice in the end. The available evidence collected at the scene was initially hard to make use of. It was a time before DNA, and there were no glaring clues that the defendant had been in her apartment. They had the testimony of a traumatized young Nelson, but a toddler would never be allowed to testify in court. Clara's case soon grew cold, a tale far too familiar during this time, especially in this area. In 1999, as a promise to her mother before she passed, Bea assured her mother that she would do everything in her power to get justice for Clara. In 1999, she began pushing the police to look into her sister's unsolved murder. It was now 25 years that it had been cold. March 18, 1999 was the start of a process that would take seven years and multiple DA assignments. On November 21, 2006, 30 years after the horrific murder, the defendant was arraigned in court. After various postponements and attorney turnover, his trial was finally scheduled for October of 2012. The prosecution put together a strong case, from eyewitnesses who saw a man lurking near Clara's building to the testimony of one of his ex-girlfriends. Bia and her sisters, the strong warriors they are, took the stand to fight for their sister. While the testimonies and accounts from each witness brought forward were undeniably powerful in securing the defendant's conviction, Clara played perhaps the biggest role. Her fingernails were tested for DNA, and because she had clawed at the defendant's face, they were able to extract enough to prove he was there that night. His first-degree murder conviction mandates a life sentence without the possibility of parole. The defendant will never see the outside of a prison for the rest of his natural life. Yeah, it, it was, you know, I wanted to help people to be aware of their, you know, there's always, there's always help out there, you know, keep going, don't, don't stop for justice, keep going no matter what. And, uh, you know, that's the way I feel about it. Just put the pressure on all of them. Keep the story out out there. Whatever, wherever you can, keep that story out, you know. Yeah. Somebody yeah. always knows something. And, you know, one day, you know, pray to God that, that they get uh, their cases resolved. I mean, it's painful. It is really painful to, you know, to to want justice, it really is. And I never gave up, never. Like I bugged them every week, uh, six weeks. I was at talking to the district attorneys and doing whatever I could to get that case moving. But uh, yeah, that's what I want people to do, the ones that, you know, are waiting for justice. You know, 
but uh, when it was over, after the case was all done, and I finally celebrated it at her her grave, and let mm-hmm. and you know that let her know she got her justice. We are in awe of the bravery exhibited by Clara's family as they refused to give up hope despite the nearly 40 years it took to see justice. We will link Beatrice's book in our episode notes. We highly encourage you to purchase a copy and read the full version of her beautiful tribute to Clara. Clara's story is a large part of the reason we wanted to share this series. Even though it took years of work, she finally got her justice. Our biggest hope is that there will be movement in the cases of Judy, Joanne, and Deborah that will grant them the same type of closure.